Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. I want to introduce my extra special guest host. Welcome back to help us out, William Mullen. It is Gay Pride Month. Woohoo! This table's very excited about it. And they, they want you to know. It's basically, I go and it's like I'm being blinded by the pride flag right there. There's so many colors. So many. What color are you? I know you're purple. What color are you? Yellow. Ye- yellow, of course. You're just radiant. That's what it is. But um, pride can mean anything, right? Like today I had my nephews visit me, and I'm so proud of them that they didn't spill anything on me today. (laughs) There were a couple of close calls, because they're at the age where their parents, my brother and his wife, are transitioning them from the plastic cups to the glassware. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And of course, I'm like running around the house like really nervous going, are you sure we have plenty of plastic? We have plenty. And they're like, no, we want glass, because they see everyone drinking out of glasses. And then they see us drinking out of wine glasses, because that's what we do during the summer. It's rosé all day, basically. And they're like, we want the pink juice. I'm like, not for a few years, kid. And and they're like, we want want glass. And they want to drink out of, like, the fine stemware. And they're getting upset. I'm like, okay, I will put your Kool-Aid in the fine you know, champagne flute. So I go, we're all like, and then there's a couple of close calls where they're gesticulating, and there's just like, you know, you look at them, it's like in slow mo, you're like, that glass is going down. You're like, you're like trying to catch it with your feet. No breakage. Amazing. So I'm proud of them. I could go on and on. That's not my story tonight, but I can go on and on. Yes, yes, exactly. Someone who has nephews around the same age. And who, who has grandchildren, children, ne- nieces or nephews here? Raise your hand. Here. Everyone does, right? No, not here physically, but, but um, here. Have you guys heard of this thing called Fortnite? Oh, my, that's my reaction. It is the, it's crazy. It is this video game, and they're all addicted to it. And every time they get the, the, the iPad or the iPhone, it's all about Fortnite, Fortnite. And I thought, oh my God, this is great. It's, I'm just assuming it's a game about British knights or royalty. And I said, well, this is great. Where's, where, where are the knights in shining armor? They're like, no. And there's like literally <laughs> dancing creatures and they're doing these moves. I couldn't get it. And then I realized I'm pretty old, even though I'm still young, I think. I'm pretty old. Anyway, Fortnite. Stay away from it. Stay away. Are you guys ready for our first storyteller? You are. Vanessa's going to get... Here's a mosquito net. Keeping with the theme, I'm going to reach into our first storyteller. By the way, the sounds that we make actually sounds like dead mosquitoes haunting you. Okay, just to make sure. Our first storyteller is... Jody J. Jody J, come up to the mic. Yes. So my name is Jody. Um, I've done a couple of these. I love coming to these events, and I'm a big fan of the Mosquito Slam and Vanessa and her partner. 
Um, so my story is, I am a lesbian woman, and, um, but my story today isn't gonna be about gay pride. Um, I'm also a survivor of domestic violence, and with the way in which this country is going with um, gun control, um, I just feel like I need to share this today. So um, on July uh, 13th of 2007, um, my ex-husband um, threatened to kill me with a Glock 45 Magnum, and I was able to survive that, and um, I've now moved to the Cape. I've been here 10 years, um, and last Saturday night, not this yesterday, but the two Saturdays ago, I witnessed domestic violence on Commercial Street, and I could not not say something, and so I followed this couple, and I... Um, took my time watching whether it was um, roughhousing or drunkenness or, you know, it was still light out and I just said, let me just observe what's going on here. Um, and I also am a big fan of What Would You Do? It's a show that comes on ABC on Friday nights. And I just thought, you know, maybe this is what this is. Maybe it's just, I'm gonna witness this and then John Canonis is gonna come out and say, you're on What Would You Do? Um, but it wasn't, sadly enough. And this young man was um, being very violent to this young woman. Um, he was probably 6'2", she was probably five foot. He was probably close to 250 pounds. She probably weighed 105 pounds. And I just thought, this is not right what's happening here. Um, and so I followed them out to the beach and it was continuing and this went on for about 10 minutes and I yelled out to her, um, do you feel safe? And she said, I do not. And at that point, I felt like I needed to call the police. Um, they came within seconds. This is in Provincetown. I was so grateful that for um, the sergeant and his um, summer crew that came. Um, and I don't know the outcome. I just hope that we can continue to um, stop the silence around domestic violence um, because the more we stuff it into the closet, um, the worse it gets. Um, so I'm just really happy and proud of myself. Um, for telling my story, I'm also um, part of the Clothesline Project. I don't know if anyone knows about the Clothesline Project, but the first year I was here, I, I told my story on a white t-shirt, and that shirt has been um, traveling the country. Um, and I'm just really proud to be a survivor. So thanks, everyone. Please welcome Ali Sands. Ali! Thanks. My name's Ali. I live in Wellfleet, and um, I speak publicly a lot, and my tagline is that my husband used to be my girlfriend. So um, I'm actually speaking at the TED event in P-Town next weekend, so it's kind of a big challenge for me. I usually speak on different things, but... I was reflecting on gay pride because I identify as a queer woman. And I was thinking about when I did tell my mom at 38 years old that I no longer wanted to date cisgender males. And I did not, I was not raised in a homophobic environment at all. My father died when I was young, but there were gay men in my parents' lives that were, that worked with both of my parents and we were taught to just love everybody and everything, but not when it came to me, let me tell ya. So when I told my mom that I wanted to date females, her response was, well, you mean like bring somebody like that home for Christmas? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Eventually I would hope to do that. And uh, she just wasn't having it. And that was about 16 years ago. And I, don't, I haven't talked to my mom in that long. Um, she, doesn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't want it. 
And at the same time, on the flip side of that, my girlfriend, who's now my husband, we've been together through the entire process of him transitioning, 15 years, and so you, you gain some things, you lose some things. But when I was thinking today about this idea of pride, the immediate thing that came to my head was the idea of people in the community, in the gay, GLBTQIA community, the sacrifice and the resilience. And those were the two words that came to me because when I think about my own story, I have two adult children who never questioned my choices or my desires. They they've completely have supported me through the whole thing, but you know, I sacrificed a family of origin to be who I am today. And that takes a lot of resilience coming out of that. And everyone that I've ever talked to in our community has a story like that. I mean, that's not like an, a unique story for any of us, am I right? I mean, so I just think we should really celebrate each other, whether you're gay or not gay or whatever, but that the idea that to be who we are in our lifetimes and to make those sacrifices to be those kinds of people that we wanna be, whatever choice it is we make, it takes so much resilience. So let's just give each other a break around that because you don't know what anybody's story is. I love the story you just told. Like, I wouldn't have known that about you. So how resilient is this person, you know? And so I just like going into this event where I, I'm really nervous about speaking in front of such a huge group of people about my relationship with a transgender person and being a queer woman that I hope everybody that's listening can stay focused on the resilience it takes to be a human and to have that kind of an experience no matter who we are. So I'm just like, yay all of us. That's what I want to say today. Thanks. All right, you guys ready for our next storyteller? Awesome. Deborah McKay is our next storyteller. Yay, Deborah. So I'd like to begin my story with a confession. Um, I'm the ripe old age of 70. Yeah. And, um, and I'm still struggling to try to feel proud of myself without relying on the opinions of others. And uh, my background is that um, my brother, who's here, my brother and I grew up with two genuinely good Christian parents. And uh, we grew up on uh, the campus of a Presbyterian seminary where my father was the minister. And everyone around us was, you know, really good Christians. They, they trained people to be ministers where we lived. And um, so the way that I tried to feel proud of myself was I tried to please my father so he'd be proud of me by following in his footsteps. So I majored in college in philosophy and theology, you know, because he was a famous theologian. And um, I went to divinity school. You know, I worked on my PhD, and I tried to be a lot like him. And I tried to be like my mother, too. Um, and she was a genuinely good 
doer of good deeds. Like, we lived in this huge mansion of the president's house at the seminary, and she always had these homeless people on our porch that she was feeding, stuff like that. So trying to please her, I did things like I adopted an orphan from Romania, you know, and raised him, stuff like that. And uh, none of that worked. Um, I never really was able to feel quite good enough to please them in my own eyes. So now we fast forward to now. And um, I've been doing these rants at home in my journal. I've been doing a lot of performances. And the rants take this form. It's kind of me trying to feel proud of myself, I think. It's like, well, if I do this, you know, if I feel like doing this, I will. And just fuck whoever, you know, whatever their opinion is. If I want to do this, if I want to do that, I will. So um, in a recent performance, for example, I would say things like, well, if I just want to start this performance by singing a fake Bellini opera, I will. And then go right into fuzzy was, he was a bear. Fuzzy was, and then start resetting the wasteland, you know. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring no root twist, and happy birthday to you. And then want to just speak in a non-existent language, like, and then maybe do like a couple of like raccoon farts, you know, like, you know. Um, if I want to do this in my performance, I, I will, and I did last week. Um, and just now. And uh, if I want to write a book, which I, I am writing, if I want to write a book that, um, as my book does, that has like 12 different narrators that are all me, <laughs> I will. And I know when you're writing a book, people just logically expect that the book will be in words. <laughs> Man, I'm like, so cliche. So I have a few words, you know. But I also have these things I call drawings. And I'm using that term like loosely. But if I want to write a book that has drawings that have like bones of minks and coyotes on them and like seaweed and forest moss and menstrual blood and whatever the hell, you know, God knows what. And these are all in the book, you know, I will. And they are in my book. Um, if I want to fall in love with someone who's an ex-convict criminal, I will. I, I have. <laughs> he was great, actually. Um, if I want to fall in love with a woman who's a grandmother who has like 17 grandchildren, I will. I, I did. Um, 
if I want to fall in love with someone who's not even human, like some trees, I will, I have. If I want to follow my dream visions and go off and my son actually came to me in a dream vision. He's like, Mom, when are you going to come adopt me? I'm waiting in Romania. And I was like, I'll be right there. You know, so I went over and found him. Went on pilgrimages, all of this. Um, so now I have to say with you as my witnesses, if I want to be proud of myself, regardless of what anyone in the world thinks about me, I will. Uh, welcome to the stage. Big round of applause for David C. David C. Woo! Okay, hi everyone. Um, this is a first-time story for me. So, Nor I, I put my name in a lot of hats, but it never gets picked. So, thank you for that introduction. So, my story is about a lesson that I learned um, being proud, being almost, you know, having hubris as an 11-year-old. So, this is a story where I thought I was a tough kid, even though I was a very, very, very skinny kid. Like, so skinny. My nickname in my family was Indent. That's how skinny I was. So, you know, I was bullied. I mean, people would bully me. Um, they would, you know, make skinny jokes and things like that, and they would tell me that uh, I didn't have a shadow or, you know, things like that. It was sort of, sort of sad. But there was one kid that I used to pick on for some reason. I don't know why, and it was in music class. In music class, all we had to do at 11 years old was just tap our feet to the beat. That's all we had to do. That was the extent of it. And this guy would sit next to me, and he was always offbeat, always. And it just annoyed me so much. So I would pick on him because, you know, I felt I could get away with it in music class. So he was on my right, and on my left was this little guy smaller than me, skinnier than me. And he would just sit there silently while I picked on this guy. And finally he said to me, you know, David, he said, I've had enough. I've had enough of you picking on Steve. You know, Steve's not that bright, and it's really not fair for you to do that. And I looked at him, and I said, who the hell are you? I hadn't heard a word from this person, like, the entire year. And he said, I'm the person who's going to beat the crap out of you. And I thought, oh, I don't think so. I mean, I had this, you know, 11-year-old, just the beginning of testosterone, you know, it was just beginning to surge. So I, um, I went and told my friends. Uh, what was going on. Meanwhile, we had a plan to meet in the boys' room. We were going to meet in the boys' room, and he was going to teach me a lesson. So I'm with my friends, and I'm discussing what's going to happen, and they tell me that this little boy is a maniac. Like, he's literally like a young criminal to be. <laughs> and they were right. Like, he was, he was not at high school graduation many years later. He was in prison. But he, so he was a tough little son of a bitch, and I didn't know this. And suddenly, I had to make a decision. My pride, do I go into that bathroom and, and you know, get the shit kicked out of me, because that's what was going to happen, because I was not a fighter. What do I do? How do I manage the situation? 
and I was really, really upset and anxious about it. So I had to find some solution that I could preserve some sense of self. So I went to see a guidance counselor, and I said I had done a terrible thing, really stupid thing. I said I picked on somebody, which I feel terrible about, and I'll never do it again, and one of the toughest, meanest kids in the school uh, now wants to take retribution on me for bullying this other person. What do I do? So I remember his name was Mr. Scott, and he looked at me at a necktie on. Guidance counselors wore neckties then. And he said, here's what you're going to do, David. He says, you're going to go into that bathroom, he said, and I'm going to come in two minutes later, and I'm going to pretend I don't know anything about this, and we'll stop it, and there you'll be able to you know, keep your whatever, your pride intact. So I thought, okay, and I told my friends, and they said, you're, I didn't tell my friends, actually. I was embarrassed about telling my friends. So I walk into the bathroom, and as soon as I walk in, there's a line of the toughest kids in the school. I didn't know they were connected with this guy, Mike, but they were. Mike was the ringleader. So they, they close ranks as I walk in. I'm all by myself, and they're all together. And then Mike comes out of the stall, and he's got his shirt off. He's a little skinny guy, and he's... He's ready to, you know, go after me. And suddenly, time began to slow down. Slow way down. I'm thinking, where's Mr. Scott? <laughs> where's Mr. Scott? And his friends are, you know, like ch charging him. They're like, beat the shit out of him. Kill that kid. He's such a jerk. Kill him. I'm like, oh, my God. And it was honestly the longest two minutes of my life. So I walked up to him, and he popped me so hard in the face, I couldn't believe it. It was like so painful. And then the door opened, and there was Mr. Scott with his necktie, you know, looking for us. He came in. He said, what's going on here? And in the end, he made us shake hands, and Mike did. Mike had, because I confronted him, and because he got the first punch, we shook hands, and from that moment on, I always had his respect. And I had the respect of this guidance counselor and ultimately my friends, you know, for coming out of this thing. So uh, with my ego somewhat intact, uh, with a little shiner, but uh, it really positioned me, you know, for many years of kind of a sense of being able to navigate these tough situations. So that's my story. Our next storyteller coming to the stage, please put your hands together for Roxanne. Thank you. So uh, in my 20s, early 20s, I played rugby. And um, I don't know if you know the sport of rugby. It's not just a sport, it's a culture. And um, it's also full tackle, no pads. They barely stop the game. It's quite a game. When I joined, I didn't realize that it would be two practices a week, going away every weekend to another town to play. I ended up living with rugby people who were amazing. And um, it, was, it was great. We sang songs. We, I mean, it was a whole culture. It was my whole life. And I did it for 10 years. It was amazing. Um, so. This was in New Orleans when I used to play rugby. And uh, we went to Texas to uh, play the Texas Aggies. Now, that's an agricultural school. 
And uh, I remember hearing, first of all, I'm in the scrum. I don't know if you know about rugby, but in the scrum means that you're the one who goes up against the other team. You're not the runner. You're there like the big Hulk, well, pusher. So you go up against the next team like this. Okay, and you, you try to get the ball from the middle out. So it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And then there are the, the fast runners who are waiting for the ball to come out. So go to Texas. We're going to play the Texas Aggies. And um, I also heard that a lot of the women on the team chewed tobacco. And um, I found that out in the scrum. When, uh, yeah, when we came together, and um, there's like, I was aghast. I didn't know, I didn't, I wasn't really sure what was happening. Then I got it, and they were also twice as big as I was. So it was this great game, it was hot. Um, and we were playing in Texas, come into the scrum, push, push it, we're pushing and pushing, and all of a sudden, the ball comes toward my feet. Somehow, I get out of the grips of the whole scrum, and I kick the ball back. Somehow, there's no one in front of me. I pick up the ball, and I start running. Now, I'm not a, you, you just, I just finished pushing, I don't know how many pounds of weight, and then the hard part in that position is to start sprinting. So in slow motion, I start running with the ball. And then I start going faster faster and faster. And there's some people next to me, and there's people kind of coming after me after a while. And I'm running, and I'm running, and I'm running. And I'm like running really fast. And no one's, all of a sudden, no one's around me. And I thought, well, gosh, I did have a protein drink earlier. That's cool. <laughs> and I, I did do a couple sprints yesterday. Wow, that's really, it's amazing. And I'm running, and I'm running, and I'm running. And I'm running. And there's, it's not a touchdown. It's called a try. So um, you don't just cross the line. You actually have to put the ball down on the ground. And so I'm running, running, running. I'm like, oh my God, I am so amazing. This is amazing and amazing. And I get there and I get there and I put the ball down. Oh, and then I look back and there's no one behind me because everybody is pounding the ground, laughing hysterically, pointing at me. And I turn around, I'm like, I just made a, I just made a try and you're laughing at me. And they're pointing at me and I look down and on my cleats, the sharp cleats, the, the cleats, is a Kotex maxi pad. <laughs> I felt. I don't know what else to say. That's about it. Welcome to the stage, Mo Barocas. Mo! Thank you. As you heard, I'm Mo Barocas. I think they should have warned me that talented people were going to tell stories. That's not fair. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show some pride in the fact that I'm a first-generation American and um, both my parents came from Europe. And it's an old family story, even older than I am, so you can imagine. It starts before I was born. And my parents lived in Washington, D.C. My father had a restaurant there. And my mother would walk to the restaurant every afternoon. I'm going to 
polish that up a little bit. Uh, and she would walk by the White House. And I love this story because it's just a family story. It has no great implications, but I take some great pride in it. And at the corner of the White House was a, uh, an old man selling peanuts. And he was a Greek old man. And my mother was Greek. And she would stop and have a conversation with him every day. And then one day he wasn't there, keeping in mind he was really old. And the second day, and he wasn't there, and the third. And she assumed the worst. And then he was back again. He was standing on his corner. And my mother asked what had happened. In Greek, of course. And he said, well, the men from the White House, they made me leave. They didn't think it was nice. Um, and then one day, and he had moved to another location. And then one day, Mrs. Roosevelt was looking out the window and asked the men from the White House, as the Greek vendor had called them, <clears throat> where's the peanut vendor? And they explained that they thought it was unseemly and had asked him to move. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, now let's find him and let's bring him back. And that's sort of a reminder of uh, our past, maybe our glorious past in relation to what we have now. Thank you. hands together for Stanley Griffith right now coming to the stage. Hi, I'm Stan. And I'm celebrating my 22nd anniversary with my wife. So by trying for the first time. Well, thanks Dave for being giving me the courage to do this. You're the first time. Uh, this is the first time for me too. And Roxanne, my daughter, was, 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 was co-captain co of, uh, of the women's rugby team at Bowdoin. So I know a lot about rugby. <laughs> Every time I would go, she would get injured. I would say, stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And she and her wife moved back to Massachusetts, uh, the People's Republic of Massachusetts, where it's safe for people like her. And, yeah. And so... Full disclosure, um, you're going to help make me feel proud because there's going to be audience participation, okay, at the end. And this is about how on July 11, 2016, I was at the State House at the People's Signing Ceremony for passage of a non-discrimination law that protects transgender persons against discrimination in public accommodations. And, yeah, 
And it was extra hard because the governor wouldn't commit to signing it, so we needed a supermajority. So I worked my ass off. I'm a third generation social justice activist, and, and I retired in 2004. What I discovered is you don't have to get paid to have stress in your life. <laughs> you know, I mean, in my retirement, I, I, I can, if somebody gives me something to do, I will run through the wall. And one of the things I did was I worked my heart out, literally and figuratively, actually. I had a near-fatal heart attack on July 11, 2016. And I was at the State House. I went for a celebratory lunch. I come home. I start having the classic elephant on the chest symptoms. And uh, I called the restaurant to find out if there was some crab, because uh, I'm allergic to crab, in the garnish on the tuna burger that I had at the celebratory lunch. Well, that, it turns out, uh, wasn't the case. My wife made the better call. She called the doctor. And the doctor said, call 911. And fortunately, it got me to the ER really fast. And spoiler, I survived. OK. <laughs> so no, that's a really good thing. Uh, because I got a second chance in life, and I got to figure out what's important, like celebrating an anniversary, being with family and with friends, and maybe easing up a little bit on the throttle, just a little bit which is part of the reason I'm at this mic right now. So the, the law that we passed, uh, so I, I'm, I've, I've, I, did, I go to the emergency room. They don't tell you when they're wheeling you in. You know, you have a 4% chance of surviving. That's the, the kind of heart attack I had was really the one you don't want to have. If you get to pick the kind, don't get an LED. That's a bad one. Uh, it's called the Widowmaker. And, and the heart attack, or the life-saving measures they use, gave me a stroke. So one of the things, yeah, it's, 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 this is a little bit of a test, because I have trouble staying on task. And, and you know, my, my you know, brain injury sucks. But choose one or the other. Don't have a heart attack and a stroke, you know, one or the other. Uh, but so I am uh, very happy to be here in all respects. So, um, but uh, I've decided that I can still do social justice work, but I have to do a little less. I have to do some things that, are, that don't require me to work quite so hard and to work with people who are willing to take responsibility for the work that needs to be done. And that could be you, okay? Because, um, well, there's another story in this. I, I'm released from, the, from Leahy Hospital to, a, a, to go to a rehab facility, and my roommate's a Trump supporter. And he controls the remote, and I get to watch the Democratic Convention on Fox News with Trump supporters in the room. And I'm supposed to avoid stress. I mean, this is, this is really, uh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, it was a hellhole. I mean, I, I, I really, <laughs> but I do understand Trump voters really well, why they did what, what they do. And I can tell you someday in another story when I have an, another five minutes. But, so the reason I really wanted to, to elicit your support in making me proud is, as you may know, 
a right-wing group has decided to make, to test mark in Massachusetts, an anti-LGBT ballot initiative. They were not successful in North Carolina or in Indiana or in Tex even in Texas or other places in attacking transgender people because the, lead the corporations weighed in and threw them and drove them out of the state. So they've there's a new strategy that's being test marketed here in Massachusetts. And of course, you all know, everyone, show of hands, who knows there's a ballot question in November to repeal the law that I worked my heart out on, literally and figuratively. Everybody know? Okay. And everybody, who's a Massachusetts voter here? Okay. And on the repeal referendum, you all know that you are going to vote yes. Yes. Okay. The question presented is, do you approve of the law and want it retained? So, of course. So, now, who's not a Massachusetts voter? Do you know Massachusetts voters? Okay. If you know Massachusetts voters, you call them up. So will you raise your hand if you promise to vote yes in November? Yes. I am so proud of you guys. Thank you. Okay, next storyteller, Kate Wallace Rogers. Yes. Hi. Hi. So. I was raised um, in a, as somebody was talking about Presbyterian, my father uh, was the son of not a Presbyterian minister, but a Presbyterian wannabe minister, which is a lot more strict than a Presbyterian minister. And he would tell us how um, he wasn't allowed to dance or sing. He, he was born in 1915 and they, he would sneak out and go dance on the street corner and then come home. And they had to read the Bible for an hour and a half after dinner every night. But anyway, that's not my story. Um, I, I was more close to my grandmother, and she would always say, pride goeth before the fall. And that was more my Episcopalian side. And uh, that basically meant that if you were audacious enough to sort of puff yourself up as you were sort of um, really proud of something you'd done, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, that you know, in the next moment, you were likely to end up on your face because God would smote you down. Anyway, that being what it is, when I was uh, about 25, I worked at a great school in New York City. And um, we had this policy about taking risks. Well, the teachers were supposed to model the behavior of taking risks so that the children could take more risks and learn more. Because if you're always worried about how it's going to go and if you're going to fall on your face, it's really hard to learn. So I had a plan. My mother had just died when I got that job, actually when I was 23. and. Um, she died at 59, and she had been a travel writer, and she traveled all over the world. And so um, she uh, 
had like frequent, it was like she was a frequent flyer before there was such a thing, like 110,000 miles a year in, in the 60s and 70s. So I grew up with this concept of, you know, there's so much out there in the world. It wasn't like, oh, stay home and be sheltered. She and her mother didn't always get along. And so, um, so I uh, was working at this school, and um, my mother had died, and I thought, well, what should I do to take a risk? And, and I decided that I wanted to take a trip around the world um, with, well, not with my brother, um, but <laughs> he ended up coming along. It was my idea. I was just going to do it by myself. That was the big risk. But um, uh, I just thought, you know, if I only had a year to live, what would I do? And, and I thought, well, I'll go around the world, and then I can see some of the things that she saw. And, but if I only had a year to live, maybe I wouldn't be able to, you know, choose that. So I said, I'll go as soon as I can. Saved up some money. And... Um, when I was leaving my school to, um, to go, I had some um, very funny friends. I don't know if anybody's ever read um, any of John Sheska's books. Um, he wrote The True Story of the Three Little Pigs and the Time Warp series. And I mean, a very wonderful, hilarious guy. Um, and anyway. So he was one of my pals, and there were just all these sort of like irreverent types. And they made a t-shirt for me um, for going around the world that said, I'm not proud, meaning that I was going to go out into the world and take risks and really um, not hesitate to live to the fullest. So in that idea, um, I've over some time I've uh, become a poet and I read or recite my poetry in front of groups of people that I don't know um, fairly often. And in that vein, I'll just offer a poem that's a little bit about uh, who I am. And um, it's called Surrender. Everything falls in place just as I awaken the author of my space, spilled ink blue windows open and overflowing. A flush of saffron light soaks my skin, so sure all I need to do is write. It's all there is left. I am breaking down to my last thin dime, my two cents, my five senses, fragmented sentences stacked up like cairns marking the Tao the way I may live this journey today. I will live on love of stones, see through the eyes of goldenrod and seals and wind, comb the dunes for berries, rose hips, mushrooms, walk the sand for clams, pick the rocks for mussels and I ams. Da da, da da, da da, da da. I am not what I fear. The rising tide, the drowning near. No need to explain the lure of shadows, how my words slip around footprints. I own my shame. How do you do? Why compare me to whomever, as if I could be something I'm not? No more trying to fit in, to be that other, mother, lover, brother. Just stay in this space, 
of creative conviction, convinced I am all I need to be, to love the real me, the one who lives relentlessly. Tell me, what else could I do? Whom else could I surrender to? Thanks. Our next storyteller coming to the stage, please put your hands together for Jen Rumza. No pressure. <laughs> Just lower your expectations right now. Way down here. I, I said I would sign up if I could just go first and get it out of the way, and I'm like, am I last? Like, <laughs> anyway, um, this is a story that uh, I, I told before. I actually told it at the Moth in Berkeley, and it, it, I went way over time, so I'm just going to shorten it. Um, and the interesting thing about it is I'm still learning from the story. Like Every time I tell it to myself, I learn something new. So I'm going to just tell you it, and uh, you know maybe I'll learn something new. But uh, So when I was an adolescent, um, I was part of a group of kids, and um, there was one in particular. We were all girls except for one boy, and he was, um, he was bullied a lot. And he was a great trumpet player, and he was really smart, um, and he just liked to hang out with us, and we all got along really well. And within like a year or so, we all started getting crushes on each other, and I got a crush on him, and he had a big crush on my best friend. And it became this sort of like torturous, you know, adolescent love triangle, right? Um, for a long time. And, uh, you know, we got through high school and we all remained friends and everything was good. But uh, when I went to college, I, you know, my world expanded. I grew up in Indiana. So um, even just going to college in Indiana, <laughs> my world expanded there. And, um, I came out to myself, and I uh, found a group of um, friends who were incredibly supportive, and we were very active. And so, coming out was a—it uh, was a parade of pride, like one internal parade of pride. I told my family, I told—I would just tell anybody, and I would go to any parade, and um, I, you know, shaved off all my hair and, and wore rainbow clothes. You know, it was like. <laughs> This is like the early 90s. I was very prideful. And um, so I, I lost touch with this, uh, this male person that I, was, that I loved dearly. And uh, he, he didn't go to college. He went to work at Walmart. And um, I went off and I moved to Massachusetts. And uh, the next thing I heard is that he was getting married. And then the next thing I heard a year later was that he was divorced and he was living in Massachusetts. He was living 20 minutes away from me in Westfield. I was in Northampton. And he was working at the Walmart there. And so I, you know, thought to myself, um, you know, I, I really should get in touch with him because, you know, he was bullied so much. He was called gay. He was called faggot. He was, he was soft. He liked to hang out with girls. And I thought... And he got married, and he got divorced in a year. He, he must 
be gay. Like, and I got, this is so perfect. I get to reach out to him. So I, I reached out to him and I had him come to this like socialist bookstore cafe where I was working with my shaved head. <laughs> and, you know, and he was in his, his Walmart shirt and he, he, you know, he came, we sat down and we started kind of catching up. And so I came out to him and I was so excited because I thought this is going to be a perfect moment for him to tell me too. And I hope he feels comfortable enough. Um, and he didn't tell me. And so I asked him, I said, you know, are you? And he was like, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I'm not. And that was it. Fast forward, Facebook, you know, 20, almost 20, well, 15 years later. And we get back in touch and I find out that he is in Louisville, Kentucky, and I happen to be going there, through there with my girlfriend. So I got in touch with him and I said, can, can I see you? So we had brunch together, he and my girlfriend and I, and he invited me back to his house and we went back to his house, which was beautifully appointed with lots of curios and he lived alone. And, but I'm like telling myself, don't make assumptions, don't, you know, don't use stereotypes and like, just don't go there, Jen. So we hung out and he mentioned he was dating somebody and it was kind of vague and, um, you know, I went on my way, I went up to Indiana, see my family, and two days later I get a phone call, and he's like, Jennifer, you know, I'm really disappointed. And I was like, what? And he goes, well, you know, this person that I'm dating is not a woman. And I was like, well, that's, that's fantastic, that's great. And he goes, well, I'm just so disappointed that you would just assume that it was. And I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. So, you know, I had some, defending to do in that uh, regard, but I also had to, I had so much compassion, so much empathy for him, because I realized that he, he still wasn't at that place that I was when I was 19, and like parading around uh, the Midwest, and he, he still couldn't just tell me and my girlfriend that the man he was dating uh, was man, and the person he was dating was a man, and, and, and it was still hard for him at, you know, 40-some years old, and um, I just respect everybody's journey with that. It's hard in a lot of different places. And, you know, I don't, I'm not here to preach. I just wanted to tell the story that, you know, my heart goes out to anybody who's struggling with who they are and their journey with finding, finding who they are in their lives. So that's all. Thanks. Candace Perry to the stage. Yeah. Well, hi, everybody. This has been a wonderful theme, and it's just been terrific, so thank you. Um, unfortunately, I've just had a ginger martini, so I'm probably... <laughs> so I'm not going to tell the story I thought I was going to tell. I'm going to tell a different one about somebody I'm just so proud of. And that's the other part of my design team, Charles and Candace. <laughs> and he won't be speaking to me. But it is just a wonderful story. When Charles and I got together about 26 or 27 years ago, um, we, I had two sons. He had one. We'd each been through some very difficult times in our lives. And I asked him what he wished he had done with his life. And without even hesitating, he said he wished he had an education. He had only finished the eighth grade in North Cambridge. It's not North, it's North. North Cambridge, he'd finished the eighth grade. He didn't tell people that. He'd been a selectman, he'd founded the Provincetown Jug Band, he'd owned an antique store, he'd done all kinds of things. 
but he didn't have a formal education. And so we were getting ready to get married. We had our kids' boys were then 12, 14, and 16. Like, just shoot me, but we did it anyhow. It was mad love. And um, I said, well, you know, why don't you go back to school? And he said, well, God, I'm 54. In four years, I'll, I'll be 58. I said, well, in four years, you'll be 58, whether you go to school or not. So he did, and he just did so fabulously. I'm just so, so proud of him. Um, he went to um, Cape Cod Community College. And mind you, this is like with three teenage boys in the house. We're doing all this, okay? <laughs> and so at one point, we had four, and I had four of them in college. So it was pretty crazy times. And uh, he went to Cape Cod Community College, and then he went to Bridgewater, got his undergraduate degree in social work, worked a few years, then went back to Salem State and got a master's degree in social work, worked some more years, still does writing and helps all kinds of people, and he's sort of an amazing person. And he has this garage across the street from our house on Chequesset Neck Road, and he has all these posters and signs, and he has, it all comes around, he has the jacket that says, I care. <laughs> posted on the side of the wall <laughs> and a lot of people stopped yesterday to take pictures and just one little other piece of this a couple years ago I was with somebody a group of people some theater thing because I do theater stuff and uh, we were trying to figure out where we each lived and I was explaining where I lived and this guy was telling me where he lived and he said oh he said I think I know where you live he said do you live near that nut who has all the posters on the garage <laughs> and <laughs> And I said, yes, I'm married to the nut. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff and sound engineered by Mark Van Bork. To find out when your next opportunity to tell a story with the Mosquito is, follow us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts are found. You can also watch videos of our storytellers on the Mosquito Story Slams channel on YouTube. Remember to tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.